episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nithin. What's good, Nithin? What's up, man? We uh, we were very upset last week about just how lack lackluster these playoffs were. I think the fourth quarter, and specifically the last four minutes of Game 7 between the Heat and the Celtics, all but made up for it on its own. That was... An absolutely insane game from one of the weirder series I can remember, especially at the stakes of a conference finals. But here we are on the cusp uh, of the NBA finals between the Celtics and Warriors, just like it felt like it was headed to uh, just a short couple weeks ago. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get to that Heat uh, Celtics game seven. But man, that that game, though, even though it was it was close at points, once again, it started to feel like lackluster ending. Boston's up 13, 14, whatever it was. And the last two minutes, like you said, kind of salvaged it all. But, man, I look back at that series as just the one of the weirdest series I've ever watched. Um, there are very few series that go to seven that are just not competitive in any game for the most part. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just not competitive. It was just the game was over from the first quarter, second quarter onwards. But thank God we're now to the finals because I think this matchup is going to be awesome. Well, it's interesting because we started with the Suns-Mavericks seven-game series that was not close actually at all. It was actually seven straight blowouts. And this one, it was interesting because all the Celtics wins were blowouts. Two of the three Miami Heat wins, Celtics came back and came within a point or two, right? And you look at it and you're like, how how did this team that was the best team in the NBA since January was pretty much mowing everyone down, swept the Durant Bucks, took out the, sorry, the Durant Nets, uh, took out the Giannis Bucks, and now are suddenly going to go to seven games with this like kind of terrible Miami Heat team that had no Tyler Hero for most of it, banged up Jimmy Butler. I don't know what Kyle Lowry, but at the same time, you look at it like, I kind of like that they pulled it out in the way that they did because they, if they didn't get over the hump there, you could argue that, you know, we were talking all year about, is this Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum's like, swan song is it time to break them up and then everyone looked like idiots if they had lost that game seven the you know up 13 with three and a half minutes left i almost guarantee jalen brown is not playing for the celtics next year especially given how many dumb plays he made down the stretch i was always on the trade jalen brown train not because he was not good but just because i thought they needed to shake something up and he was the best asset that you can give up without getting rid of tatum and he made a critical boneheaded decision near the end he took a shot early in the shot clock Talk about Marcus Smart. They left him open plenty of times, and he rewarded them with just brick after brick. And Tatum, man, as good as he is, still is not that killer, and the clutch, his clutch uh, stats are not good whatsoever. As good as he is as a one-on-one kind of scoring wing, there's a lot left to be desired there. So issues for Boston all around, but you can look at it also, like, like you said, they – grinded this out. They grinded the Milwaukee series out. You can argue they shouldn't have taken these series that long, but at the same time, they they won when it mattered, and they, and they won the crunch time minutes when it mattered. Yeah, I think Tatum, you, you texted me kind of at the start of the fourth quarter when Boston was up 7, 82-75 going into the fourth. Miami had mounted a run. Boston pushed back. Miami went on a little bit of a run again at the end of the third, and you said these last 12 minutes are going to tell me a lot about Tatum. In a way, I'm still searching for the answer because <laughs> they won. He made the right play at times in terms of getting doubled, finding the right man. But like you said, you, you lacked 
that like, let me go grab this game by the throat and take us home. And it doesn't mean that you have to shoot 20 times, right? That's not exactly what it means. It means, you know, you do have to be aggressive. You do have to look to get to your shot when you can. And you do have to look to to sort of make the passes when you can. Like LeBron's taught us that shooting is not always the necessarily the right option. At the same time, he felt like more a complimentary player down the stretch with Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown looking like the stars than the other way around. And you never want that from your first team All-NBA player to look like the third guy on the floor. Um Certainly not the third best player, but the third most important, the way that those two were, you know, kind of conducting the late game offense there. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, he was passing it pretty well. They were sending the hard double at him. He'd kick it out to Smart, who's wide open. But the Heat want that shot every time. Like, that's by design. And at some point, you have to find a way to, to, I agree. Not it's not taking twenty shots a game, but but need to have your kind of stamp on that game. You can't give up a thirteen point lead in two minutes without getting any kind of buckets or possessions on your own. Uh, yeah. That's just not acceptable for any superstar. So, if we're going to talk about Tatum like a top five, top seven guy, I know it's harsh, but if you're going to get all the the kind of first team All NBA acknowledgements and people are talking about you as an ex great wing and Durant like Durant comps really early. You have to be able to salvage some of those possessions down the stretch. Well, it's interesting because in Game 7 versus Milwaukee, again, another Celtics opponent played very similarly where they doubled Tatum and they let Grant Williams be the guy to take those open threes. He ends up hitting, what, 7 or 8. He's an absolute Game 7 hero, and they're on to the next round. In this instance, they let Marcus Smart be that guy, and he missed a lot of those shots, right? And so... Um, you know, you have this chess match where it's like, you don't, it's almost like you got to go all in over and over again in the game seven and just hope you have the best hand. Uh, I thought the Celtics did that with Victor Oladipo, who just couldn't really make many shots. He had maybe one, uh, and then Kyle Lowry, who is just a disaster. I don't care what the sort of his, what his numbers ended up. I don't care how many charges he took epic disaster in my opinion on both ends. And he was supposed to be the piece that took them over the edge. It's going to be really interesting to see how they come back next year, but before we get off this series, I guess we just were obligated to to discuss right shot or not from Jimmy Butler. Absolute right shot. I honestly am so confused by the discourse around whether it's a good shot or not. Now, I know a lot of people have come out in support of it. It's not like this is a bold take, but absolutely the right shot in rhythm. I don't care what his three-point shooting numbers are on the season or what the context is. You trust that shot. There's too much at stake to take it in on, on a, I get it, backpedaling Al Horford to some extent, but you're hoping for a foul. You're hoping for finishing at the rim when Jimmy Butler's played the entire game, tired legs. You go for that shot. You go for the kill and hope you can get, because either way, you have to get a stop. Either way, if you tie the game or if you hit a three, you have to get a stop. At least getting hitting that three would give you a chance to get a stop and then win the game as opposed to going into overtime. So I, I think it's one of those bang-bang plays, man. You make a decision. I trust Jimmy in that situation. No-brainer city. Like, what are we talking about? Jimmy Butler has played the entire, literally the entirety of the game. The last fourth quarter, he didn't really spearhead that comeback. It was Bam Adebayo, it was Max Struess, it was Oladipo. So you can't sit there and be like, hey, man, can you play for overtime and grind out another five minutes against a team that you're clearly not as good as, you know, with players that are clearly not as good as uh, any of your opponents? Like he had a wide open three, first of all, 
He's 47% on above the bank transition threes. If we really want to get into the analytics of oh, good shot, bad that. shot. You got the stat. So yeah. even though Jimmy Butler is not a great three-point shooter, that is actually a very good shot for him and for his shot profile. And then thirdly, the p- thing that people just ignore is like, that's Al Horford, dude. That's not Enos Cantor. Like, he is going to contest that shot in a pretty meaningful way. They're going to, he would have had to assault him at the rim for them to call a foul, <laughs> much less an and one. So the best case scenario is what? You take a contested layup against an all world defender who's been playing incredible out of his mind defense all series? No. He gave him six feet of room. It's a wide open shot. And if they hit that, I mean, I really wish just for like, you know, we always talk about what what event would bring down Twitter or bring down the internet within the very small niche that is the basketball Twitter sphere or the basketball Reddit sphere that would collapse websites that would collapse people's like data plans. The whole thing would have come apart if he hit that shot. So I, I say go for it. And it's not again, this is Jimmy fucking Butler. It's not, uh, you know, it's not freaking Gabe Vincent taking a pull up three with 14 seconds. Look, this is your guy. You're going to go down with the ship. I don't even know why it was a debate, frankly. And this is as someone who for a split second was like bad shot. And then I immediately reversed course once I thought about it. So when the shot was up in the air, did you think it was going in? Because I yes. did. Yes. And if you look at the angle from behind him, the replay, it was actually online just short. Just short. Yeah. It was. It looked like it was going straight into the basket. And I'm pretty sure that all the Celtics players thought the same thing. If if anything, I thought maybe he could have um, planted a little bit better. He was kind yeah, of leaning forward as he shot it. He but it's such a, you know, it happens fast. You can't. Yeah, and this isn't 2K, man, where he can see if there's someone behind him. He can, he doesn't have the eyes in the back of his head. Though in 2K, you would have to stop for like 20 minutes, take a pause, sit on the ground before they let you actually shoot from behind <laughs> the three-point line. Otherwise, you'd be like running towards the rim doing some type of like weird 20-foot floater. That's true. That's actually very They would never let you shoot an actual three. His momentum would have carried him out of bounds behind the baseline. Um, okay. Any parting thoughts for either the Heat or the Mavericks? No, I mean, I think, well, two different teams, right? Mavericks, you've got Luka, you've got a more promising future. Obviously, they have questions they need to answer. The Heat, it's more interesting because this is a team where, I don't know, you saw the Jimmy Butler show, he's getting older. Kyle Lowry is is con- going to continue to get paid. He's not worth the, what he's getting paid. Bam, disappointed, underwhelmed. So it'll be curious to see. And Miami is always known for retooling. So it'll be curious to see kind of how they, what the next iteration looks like. Yeah. I mean, look, they have a, you know, Dallas obviously has a very, very high flow with Luca, but there's clearly not nearly the talent that's necessary to play around him. I mean, we've been throwing the 07 LeBron comps out. You threw some 2010 LeBron comps out. All of those make sense. The very big similarity between any of those early Cavs teams is the talent around the superstar is just not sufficient to compete. Especially when you think about this is not 2007 where like the old ass Pistons are dragging their way into the conference finals. Like this Warriors team with prime staff, all these guys, like not to mention next year with the Clippers, Nuggets, Lakers, all coming back Memphis. I mean, there's just so much talent there and it's the one man band is just not going to work. On the Miami side, as, as successful as this a season as this was, getting the one seed, getting to game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals, et cetera, how many more years can Jimmy really do this? He's 32. He plays a very bruising style. Um, yes, he did not really show much signs of let up in the final or in the conference finals, but he had 
couple bad games, right? And he had a couple bad bad games sprinkled throughout the playoffs. And so eventually you want a guy like Bam, who's 24, to be the one who's going to be the primary offensive focus. He's not shown to me that he can be that guy night to night. Sometimes he can. Sometimes he looks like he's just there to play defense, right? And so I don't know where they go get that third star. Is that a Bradley Beal? Is that a Donovan Mitchell? I'm not sure. But it doesn't help that part of the trade package for any superstar would involve Duncan Robinson, who is receiving DNPs uh, regularly. So that's that's not ideal. But, you know, Pat Riley's always got a rabbit out of the hat that he's able to pull. So I'm excited to see what they do, because I know that they have to maximize these last couple of years of Jimmy. Would you do you think they'd uh, entertain a trade package on Hero? I know they he was always on. Well, they have to, but... right? I mean, he, so let's say it's Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal is a free agent. He's been rumored to go to Miami for a while. He is eligible for this supermax, which would put him in the neighborhood of about forty five million next year in salary. So to even get that done from a salary standpoint, because Hero doesn't make big money yet, right? He makes six million. Robinson's at eighteen. That gets you up to twenty four, and you'd have to throw in Kyle Lowry, who's like twenty seven. So that would get you to enough um, of a package salary-wise. But now you're, what, taking on a negative contract in Duncan Robinson, four years and $72 million left. Taking on a potentially negative contract in Larry, who we both thought looked absolutely cooked. How many picks do you need to add just to make this all happen, right? Because not only are you trading picks for Beal, you're trading picks to have them take these bad deals from you. That's where it gets really tricky for Miami, I think. Um and, and where things are different than they were even a year ago when you were starting to put together some of these package ideas. You mean you can't talk yourself into a Kyle Lowry, Tyler Hero, Kyle Kuzma, Kristaps? Uh, that team could win, I don't know, 40 games out east? I would, I would do Lowry, Robinson, and Hero with three firsts and two swaps. <laughs> what? That's, that's not I, I mean, that's the Drew Beals Holiday not pack. worth that much. What did I just say? It's not just about Beal. It's about taking on these shit deals from them. You sure, but you're it. still there's you're still getting a good asset in Tyler Hero. You're That's taking it, on though. two bad contracts. Robinson's a negative asset. Lowry maybe is tradable, maybe not. Maybe you send him to the Lakers and bring Westbrook back and run this whole show. <laughs> um all right. Anyway, let's talk about the two teams that are actually playing. Celtics and the Warriors. Um Random side note, by the Celtics beating the war, uh, the Heat in the conference finals, it now marks 11 out of 12 seasons that either the Heat or the Warriors have been in the finals, yet they've never played each other, um, which is kind of fascinating. This is the Warriors' sixth appearance since 2011, and the Heat's, you know, Heat have been there five times. So kind of an amazing um, little quirk. The, you know, the biggest thing I would say is these two teams are probably two of the three or four best defenses in the league. And uh, Celtics, of course, have been number one in that, The the especially since January. The, the Warriors ended up finishing first in defensive rating, but a large part of that was before the Draymond injury where they were running away with things. It's going to be a hard-fought series. I, I would say that there are both – they both offer things that I think neither has seen in the playoffs thus far. For the Warriors, it's, you know, the size and versatility that um, the Celtics pose, especially from an offensive standpoint, right? Like Dallas had a lot of size that was switchable, but a lot of their players were one-dimensional shoot shooters and defense. They couldn't really dribble or create off, you know, create off the bounce the way Boston can. And with, with Boston, it's really like they've never sh- seen this combination of shooting and movement 
um, across all of the matchups they played. They were very star dominant um, in a way that the Warriors, even though they have a superstar or not. So I'm really fascinated to watch this play out. I think we both talked about this the last couple of weeks. It's the best basketball matchup. Um, but any any kind of opening thoughts as we get into to breaking this thing down? Opening thoughts. I live 10 minutes away from, 10 minute walk from Chase. Um, and so tomorrow, we we'll right in the thick of the NBA Finals, which is pretty cool. I've never been that close. Thinking about, you know, rocking a Tatum jersey, strolling down, maybe <laughs> trolling some of the fans there. Because before we get into the matchup, I'm all aboard the Celtics. Everyone knows how much I don't like the Warriors, but it's kind of a, the Boston also, no one really likes to win. But man, I am so excited and so hyped. The NBA is more fun when you have a villain to root against. So for me, the biggest takeaway is I'm excited just to watch and potentially watch the Warriors stumble, lose, and then see all the fallout that happens and then be right here to, to celebrate all of that. Yeah, does you being in the thick of things, like is your couch located somehow like in the concourse? You're going to be sitting at home. What are you talking about? I'm in the thick of things. You're not going to venture out there. You're scared of those Warriors fans. It'd be more, I mean, let's say the Celtics win, right? That they Let's say they close the series out in game five. That'd be fun. And I, I wouldn't say anything maybe, but just uh, walking around, seeing the sad faces. If the Celtics win, like everybody has to raise down rounds for their next venture, like it'll be so sad. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, so we're going to break this down. We have a number of questions we're going to kind of go back and forth on. The first one, and, and hopefully through these conversations, will will lead to our finals prediction. Again, this is Wednesday night that we're recording, so the finals kick off tomorrow. First question for you. What's your most intriguing matchup? And what I mean by that is, one player on offense going up against another player on defense, so specific to that side of the ball. So I, I'd like to say Marcus Smart, Steph Curry. I think it's a little too obvious. So I'm going to go with Al Horford, okay, and any of the Boston guards. Oh, sorry, uh, Warriors guards. Now the reason I say this is because um, the Celtics pick and roll defense is really good, and it's been a staple for them. In this playoffs, I think that they finished second or ranked second. Opponents just score 0.725 points per possession. It's a really good number. But I think what that stat obscures is the fact that they've gone up against a lot of shaky shooting teams. Um, I mean, Brooklyn has some shooters, but not all consistent. Milwaukee has some, but like once again, not that consistent. And then Miami, we know with the Struces and Gabe Vincents of the world. And so I think what they've gotten away with is Horford, when they try to put him in the pick and roll, he could play a little drop coverage. They could be a little soften up on those shooters and take chances. Golden State, you can't do that. Um, you have to step out, hedge, and then maybe recover. Does he get switched? And Horford's a good defender, but I, do I trust him on the perimeter against Poole and Steph and that speed? So I think it'll be interesting to watch how they navigate um, the screens, just the chaos of the the offense. And, as good as Al Horford is at the rim, if he gets drawn out into some of these actions, how he can he can recover. So I think defensively, Boston is going to have a, a new challenge that they haven't seen yet and um, will be interesting to see how they respond. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if they get blitzed in game one just because it's a completely different offense that they've seen so far. It, it's a lot to adjust to after seven hard-fought games followed by seven hard-fought games playing a totally different defensive style. 
I think the reason why originally I was going to go smart stuff as well, and again, backed off because of because that's the obvious one, is the Warriors don't run a lot of pick and roll, right? So you're looking at a situation where they're actually not going to do what might be advantageous matchup-wise. They're going to do what their playbook and what their scheme want, you know, indicates they should do. And that's going to be motion. It's going to be back cuts. It's going to be um, running stuff off screens, things of that nature. I think Marcus Smart will have to work tirelessly to kind of get around a lot of the the, the bodies that they're going to throw at his place. So maybe, like you said, it's a hedge from Horford before recovery. But I don't know how much, you know, Draymond, let's say Horford matches up with Draymond. I don't know how much high pick and roll they're going to run there uh, versus maybe dribble handoffs or otherwise. So I think it's definitely interesting to see how he navigates the movement. Um, But I'm curious if they're going to try to switch everything coming off screens, especially with Brown and Tatum or and just pass them off one by one. But that's where it gets so damn hard when you're moving as much as the Warriors move, passing, passing, uh, you know, offensive players off between defenders becomes extremely difficult because it's almost like it's like, uh, you know, in the jumbotrons where they have like three cups and they put like a donut under one cup and like follow the donut and they're just going fucking ballistic and all of them moving. And by the end of it, you have no clue what's going on. That's what guarding the warriors is like. And so I think it's a test for all five of them. Um, yeah. And so, so that, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's not just you're right, not just the pick and roll. It's a varied offense. It's the flare screens up top. It's how they're going to free up those shooters. And um, I mean, this is something that we've seen a lot of teams struggle with, and a lot of good defensive teams. I mean, Dallas right out the gate, a good defensive team, did really well the last couple of rounds, stopping uh, traditional Phoenix pick and roll offense, and they had no answer for Golden State, and at least Boston has the horses. They've got the wings. They've got the size. Um, but it's going to take adjusting. And and I feel like they can't afford to take, like, they need to steal one of the first two games. And so how long it takes them to adjust, I think, is going to matter. Yep. And and the Warriors are 9-0 at home, by the way, in this playoff. So it's not exactly easier yeah. to go into, easy to go into chase. My matchups on the other side of the ball, uh, it's, it's Jason Tatum uh, against Andrew Wiggins. And so I think Wiggins has showed out in the playoffs and everybody's kind of rewriting his, for some reason, this 15 game sample size is apparently like erased seven years of, of basketball, but nonetheless, you know, I'm happy for him. I'm happy. He's found his place. Um, there are now warriors fans who legitimately think he has a hall of fame case because he started one all-star game and, you know, is the fourth best player on a potential title team, but nonetheless, um, he, he really redeemed himself versus Luca. Now Luca got his numbers, right? Average over 30 points, shot the ball fairly well. But a lot of that was garbage time recovery going from 20-point lead to 8-point lead, things of that nature. And some of it was in Game 6, sorry, in Game 5, the closeout game. And then in Game 1, this, the two games that probably mattered the most, he was bad. And a lot of that had to do with Wiggins bothering him. Now, Tatum, for all his you know inconsistencies on offense, the one thing he's very, very good at is hitting contested jumpers. And so I'm really curious to see how Wiggins guards him. Does he play for the drive? Does he allow him to get open looks? And, and and you know, he's a little bit taller than Luka, and he's able to rise up in a little more. So I don't know if Wiggins' length is going to matter as much. Um, and his physicality, you know, Tatum is a, a big guy. He's not Luka's size, but he doesn't necessarily play in a way that's intending to get to the cup at on every possession. We know that. That's to a fault. But 
I'm really curious to see how they guard Tatum. I assume it's going to be Wiggins, probably matched up minute for minute, just the way he did with Luka. And whoever wins that matchup, I think, can, will probably end up winning the series because that's going to be so instrumental, uh, depending on which version of Tatum shows up and which wor- version of Wiggins, not only on defense, can you know have the energy to hit, hit big shots on the offensive end. Yeah, and this is also going to be the most athleticism Wiggins has faced. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're talking about going to get Luca, amazing player, but it's very easy to stay in front of him. Um, and Wiggins has the length too to match up with Luca's size. Tatum is a little bit more dynamic athle- athletically. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. As good as Wiggins has been on defense this year, I also don't think he's some lockdown first team all NBA guy. Um, but as, as we just mentioned earlier too, Tatum is also not a guy who's going to kill you um, for lackadaisical defense. So, that's a good one. Um, I wonder, you know, if, if Wiggins is going to get, he'll probably get the the Tatum role exclusively, right? And what they'll put Clay on on uh, Jalen. Jalen Brown. That's my guess. Yeah, I think especially because Jalen Clay has struggled to stay in front of guys coming off injury. He's gotten a little bit better. He was able to do it with Luka a few times, but Jalen Brown, because of his lack of dribbling, is not going to necessarily like zoom past you either so it's kind of a good matchup uh for clay because he can be a little bit more physical um and he has the size to contest jalen brown shot i think that makes the most sense uh marcus smart on staff and then i think it's gonna probably be al horford on draymond assuming robert williams is healthy and on looney that's that that would be my guess marcus smart on staff right just going to that one although it's very obvious It'll be interesting because we've seen Steph in the past struggle against physical guards, right? And I'm going way back with this, with Tony Allen, this is a long time ago, but mm-hmm. Tony Allen kind of bothered him. Remember when Memphis was a little bit competitive? Yeah, in that series? they were up 2-1 in 2015, yeah. yeah. They're up 2-1. Mike, um, Mike Conley broke his face. If he didn't, you know, this whole thing could have come down. Yeah, and that was a combination Probably. of both Conley's defense and uh, Tony Allen, but I think that physicality bothered Curry. And I'm curious to see how smart plays him. But like you said, they're going to put him in all kinds of actions. It's not, and it's going to be a lot about how he fights through those screens, how he, he runs after these guys. But if he's that is going to be interesting if he's DPOY, you better show me why this series. Cause if you're a DPOY as a point guard and you have to be really, really elite and their best player on the other team is a point guard, then like, let's show me something, right? This is like in 96 when Gary Payton won DPOY and the games he guarded Jordan in the finals, guess what? Shut he him made down. him struggle. And so, you know, maybe it was too little too late for when that happened. But at the end of the day, like he played well on Jordan the time he was given. And so Smart's going to get that assignment from day one. If you're really in that class of defender, which this hardware indicates that you are, let's see it. Um, all right. Next question. Who do you think on either team, if you had to pick one X factor in this series, who is it going to be? So for me, I'm going to go with Derek White. Ooh, I like that. Okay. What's the case? So I think Derek White, his offensively, it's it's going to be – the Celtics go through these offensive possessions where um, – They struggle to get shots. And a lot of times it it comes down to the shooters and whether Derek White or Grant Williams can make a shot. And I think Derek White is the most 
in some ways most inconsistent uh, out of all the players. There's some games where he'll hit six or seven threes. There are a lot, most games he, he doesn't really show up on offense. Um, and I think uh, the couple of times they played in the regular season, Golden State was very happy sagging off of, of White and giving him uh, open threes. I think that the two games they played this year. Um, and I think he needs to punish them for that. And he's been kind of a roller coaster on the offensive side for much of the playoffs. I think that they're going to need his offense more than anything else. Smart, we know what the story is going to be. He's going to be on and off. Tatum, Brown, they're going to get theirs. But I think if they can get a good series out of Derek White, that completely flips their chances of winning this or really helps their chances because that's a fourth guy you can kind of trust on offense. Yeah, and I think Derek White is also, you know, if Marcus Smart is in foul trouble, we've already seen him go through injuries. Like, he is the Steph defender then at that point, and he is potentially a starter in some situations. Like, you don't really want to play a whole lot of Peyton Pritchard in this series, in my opinion. Like, I think he'll play because the Warriors won't necessarily punish him in the same way that you might if you got got a guy like that on the floor. But I think this is going to be a series where the I mean, MA is not worried about tightening rotations. There's nothing left to play for. So I think it's seven guys, right? It's the five starters, Grant Williams and and Derek White, really. And so he's got to be big time. He's got to be consistent, make those open threes, because they are going to leave him open. You mentioned Tony Allen earlier. They may give him the Tony Allen treatment that the Warriors beat the Grizzlies <laughs> with, right? Back yep. back in that Just series. So, wide open. Right. Um my my answer is actually who I think Tony, uh, Derek White's counterpart is. That's Jordan Poole. And if you look at Jordan Poole throughout this you know, playoff run, he's averaging, he's actually third on the team in scoring. He's averaging 18.4 points per game. But he's, you know, almost 50, 40, 90 right now. He's 53, 39, 92. Um, and it's just including 65% from two. And you look at it and you're just like, how the hell do they have a third guy who matches Steph and Clay in shot making? At the same time, the whole pool party, everybody flipped out about that in the Nuggets <laughs> series. That has gone away because they know that that matchup is going to get toasted, right? If you have Steph and Pool out there, you just won't survive defensively. Specifically, the team designed to exploit that advantage is Boston, right? They did it round one with Seth Curry. They did it round two with Grayson Allen. They did it round three with Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson so much so, like, again, he couldn't even see the floor. Now, Jordan Poole might be the best offensive player of that entire group, and therefore his what he brings to the table is enough to sacrifice defensively. But if they keep targeting him in the pick and roll, getting him on Tatum, getting him on Brown, those are going to be really, really good looks for those players, and it's going to be hard to play him with those guys. Now, if he's shot making, maybe they just ride the wave and allow those possessions and help out as much as they can. But I think that's why there's the biggest swing in terms of what type of offense he's going to bring because he's going to get worked on defense no matter what. Is it is the offense commensurate with his you know being on the court versus having to come off because you're just going to be a net negative? And I think that's really really going to dictate uh, you know a lot of the lineups and a lot of the matchups that that Kerr ends up going with. Yeah, that that's a good one. I'm very curious to see uh, how Poole does in this series, especially against a better defensive team and a team with a lot of size uh, yep. on defense. So forget about just pool defensively. Um, offensively, I think it's not going to be as easy for him as it has been Yep, the past couple series. All right. Storyline you're most interested in. I'll let you start on this one. Okay. So mine's going to be 
this is so the one I went with is every year. So you know, R.I.P. to the Black Mamba to Kobe. He passed tragically January 2020. Every year since then, there's been like a player who's taken it upon himself to come off as Kobe's best friend. So year <laughs> one is LeBron. They did the Black Mamba jerseys. The freaking Lakers won the title that year. Year two is Devin Booker, the B legendary tattoo, which got more airtime than like the rest of the series combined and like all these things. I was like, did Kobe know you? Like, what's going on? <laughs> and then now it's Jason Tatum, who wore the who went as far as to wear the Lakers armband in game seven as Kobe, you know, 24 tattooed on his leg. I'm just interested to see how this continues, really. You know what I mean? Like, Kobe is a legend. I think we miss him. There's no question about that. But there's also a little bit of a – there seems like a little bit of performance theater from some of these stars in terms of developing kind of like, hey, I want to be aligned to Kobe's greatness. So who's going to be next year, right? Could it be Trey Young? Could it be R.J. Barrett? I don't know. Like these players would have to get to the finals. But it seems like someone's always taken his legacy. And I know that's not a basketball storyline, but I noticed it the other day when they were talking about the armband, which I thought was kind of crazy that Celtics fans who are as soft as getting upset because someone stepped on Lucky wouldn't think wearing the purple and gold would be, uh, you know, tantamount to sacrilege. But uh, here we are. It's getting weird, man. Like texting him. And that's weird. And then posting it. it. That's a weird thing. This is exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm intrigued by it. How far can uh, we go with this? There's some jokes or memes about the response. Some guy photoshopped the response of Kobe responding saying Warriors in five. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I saw that. But it is is weird. I don't like how these guys are all doing it. Like, look, you're not unique. Every young player says that. Every young player says they have that relationship with Kobe. They've all met him at some point. They've all had a picture with him. Like, so it's one thing if he had a very unique relationship. No matter what, the text is weird, but... I totally agree. I think there's just going to be more and more of this. Like, how, do we have to hear this every finals? Maybe next well, year it's De'Aaron Fox. Um, you know, talking about Kobe no, and, no, uh, Kobe wouldn't have talked to him. He only talked to. Good I players. love how that is what what makes it unrealistic. Not the fact that I'm talking about the Kings in the finals. So, I'll take that. <laughs> well, that's why I was like R.J. Barrett, but then that would involve the Knicks or some crazy trade. Um, I mean, it's funny because you remember. Uh, early in Tatum's career where everyone was mad because he would go train at the Mamba Academy and then take these like really bad contested two, two point jumpers. And they'd be like, Kobe is sabotaging the Celtics through training Jason Tatum. Um, No, but the real storyline I think is around Tatum and just his progression. Um, He has been kind of anointed. He's only 19. We've heard that for a long time. And this is finally kind of his skill set matching his performance, matching for the most part his consistency. And to see it all come together with the likely finals MVP if the Celtics were to win this title. I mean, I would imagine he's a 99% chance to win the finals MVP, right? If the Celtics win. Um, I think that's special. You know, you talked about the top five, top seven thing. That isn't certainly in play, certainly likely if he's able to add a finals MVP to what's been a pretty impressive playoff run and season overall. So that's that's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, on a side note, right, on off-court storylines, remember there was also that guy who got the tattoo of Boston Celtics championship banner like before the season started? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of dumb decisions, I may age poorly, but at the same time, 
it could age very, very well. Doesn't that happen like kind of often? Like people will do, I mean, I guess the team has to do well, right, for it to become a news story. But I feel like people get tattoos of their teams and then they figure out a way to like be able to change the numbers as they need to. What, so Um, every year you just put it off and just change the last digit? Yeah, I mean, you can basically design the tattoo in a way that it's almost like a scoreboard on your arm. So you can just change <laughs> it's just it to a, whenever. It's just, you should just leave it blank, right? Put a two and then leave the next three years blank and then just That wait. would be assuming two is possible. If you're a Wizards or two, Kings fan. In the next fan, thousand you, years. <laughs> if you're a Wizards or Kings fan, would you feel confident putting a two on there? Yeah, man. Next hundred years, maybe not, but thousand years for sure. Who knows? I guess when would the, the NBA dissolve? Yeah, we're gonna win like the Mars Division Three League, <laughs> and they're the gonna intergalactic put a championship. <laughs> By the way, um, speaking of tattoos, and you want to talk about foresight? Jason Terry doing it before the 2011 Mavericks uh, title yeah, run. Now that, was that a good is one. baller because that is an actual player who can contribute to that uh, outcome. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, all right, so my storyline, I really think, and actually. You know, surprisingly, I don't feel like I've heard this that much. You may feel different. Mm-hmm. This, if the Celtics win this title, it's going to be their 18th championship in franchise history. It's going to break the tie they currently have with the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm. Um, and I think in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of big because the Lakers have been seen as the more dominant franchise recently. Um, the Celtics haven't won since 07-08. Lord knows how they've milked that title since then. But this will give them another recent title, more recent than L.A., and just the direction of the franchise is is completely opposite. Now, I know the Lakers love LeBron, but a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty around the future, and it looks like no matter what happens in the finals, the Celtics are poised to be contenders for a while. And so I I think it's interesting. You know, these things can always flip-flop back and forth. It's They're only off by one if the Boston wins. But I still think that uh, given how much the Lakers have been kind of the recent dominant team in that rivalry and Boston's fallen out of the picture, they are now usurping that throne once again. Yeah, I think the tie, the breaking the tie and the fact that the next 10 years you would easily rather be you know in the Celtics camp versus the yep. Lakers camp, but I think there's no question about it, definitely tilts the favor. I think the reason why it's not talked about as much is because this iteration of both franchises hasn't really had any sense of rivalry. Like the fact that we got to see after all those years after magic and Larry to see them go against each other in the finals twice in three years in 08 and in 10 reignited everything. But of course all those dudes are, you know, long gone. There's no, no, there's no one there that's played in those times. And, and then the Lakers have just been built through like this weird hodgepodge of acquisitions, trades, free agency. It's not like no none of them feel like true Lakers. I mean, even LeBron, he's its own he's his own entity that just happens to wear a purple and gold jersey, whatever he might want to post, right? And so I think that's that's part of it because the Celtics actually do have something built up with all these guys, but again, they were never part of the rivalry because they were still kind of on the cusp. And that may be what it is. Maybe we need the 18th title to remind us, hey, by the way, these guys are one up again. So what's up? And, you know, we can't just be like, well, all your titles were in the 60s when, like you said, they have the most recent one. Yeah. And, you know, the, like, most people don't care about that anymore. <laughs> like these are all only the old school, like 40, 50 year old people who are alive during the actual rivalry care. 
but that being said, it's just another thing to kind of rub in Laker fans' faces, which I like. Is there anything such is it like what is a, like an NBA rivalry at this point, right? Like I'm I was kind of going through it and what teams would even really truly hate each other that could be faced off? Like even if you wanted to say like Nets and Warriors and you have KD and like you know, versus the Warriors, and then you have like Kyrie going up against the Warriors again, all this stuff. It's like nobody cares. They don't care. And so much has happened since those guys. I don't know. Yeah. So what right. combination like what matchup do you think don't worry about East versus West, but in general, what what matchup in today's day and age would have the biggest rivalry? Clippers, I don't Lakers, know. I, I feel like we were but, close to getting some, right? Like, for example, if Bucks Heat played this year, but would that have felt years. any different? I mean, if the Heat win, I don't know. Um, or Bucks and Nets, if they had gone to the conference finals, both of them, um, and played each other. I know that's not possible, but I, I think there were always opportunities, right? The Lakers Clippers that never manifested itself, but that could have been. We they were faced each other in the, the first year. That would have been a rivalry instantly. We were robbed of that in the bubble. Yeah. So well, EG robbed I, us of that. Yeah. I, it's not like football where there's just rivalries no matter how good the teams are. It takes a combination of both teams being good, both teams beating in the postseason multiple years in a row with somewhat of the same rosters. And then I think you can get it. At this point, Knicks Hawks is like the best rivalry in basketball. And that's saying something. Well, I think part of it is like you touched on the football thing is like everyone plays everyone every year. And so it's not as like in football, you only play your division every year and then you play your matchups that they like sort of align for you every year. And so Raven Steelers is always going to matter more because they're always going to play twice, whereas the Ravens might not play any other team twice other than Bengals and Browns for many, many years. And so that's the piece that like is missing in basketball. And actually what I think basketball should consider adopting, and maybe they would if there was a little bit more parity in the league, of where you don't really have a ton of interconference matchups. They wouldn't do this, I know, for a variety of reasons. But instead of playing everyone four times in your conference, two times in the other conference, if it was like six in your division, four in your conference, one or two the other side, something like that to create a little bit more animosity over the course of the season, actually like how they used to. But uh, if you play a team six teams instead of four, does that make it more of a rivalry? I don't know. Yeah, I guess nobody cares because none of the players care. So why this is moot. Even if it was a one-game yeah. season, it wouldn't matter. They'd be like, no, nah, I'm going to sit this one out. Um, okay. Storyline you're most tired of. Do you want me to go first with this one again? Sure, yeah. So easily, easily, it's this the fucking warriors have been reborn from the ashes like a phoenix and <laughs> how how is it possible that they two years of injuries and missing the playoffs and now they're right back in the finals without KD you know the D'Angelo Russell turned into Wiggins and Wiseman Moody Kuminga sorry turned into Wiggins and Kuminga they got Wiseman and Moody not even really contributing they're built for now and for the future we're back to the thousand years ahead or whatever Light years Light ahead. Years ahead. We're back to Steve Kerr and like the motion. We're back to the shimmying, the yelling, the smiling. Get it out of my face. That is what <laughs> I'm most tired of. 100%. And what's coming if the Warriors win will be legacy talk that is going to actually break each of our brains. 
it's going to be bad. And that's that's why I feel like you have to root for Boston. Um, Joe Lacob, I, I mentioned this on a previous pod, is the worst part of all of this because this dude's quiet. He's always quiet. At least Mark Cuban, you always hear from him. Uh, Vivek Radadive, you don't want to hear from him, and you hear from him. Joe Lacob is just in <laughs> Those hiding. Those are the holy his, trinity of owners, huh? Like a cockroach hiding in his fucking hole somewhere uh, when the Warriors aren't doing shit. All of a sudden, now all kinds of quotes are coming out of Joe Lacob, talking about how they built the team the right way, how you know this is just the Warriors' culture and things like that. And they're not going to trade for superstars and make immediate win-now moves. And look, while that may be true and they have run the team the right way, I hate it when the owner's front-running like that. I just, I absolutely hate it. Especially the owner of a team in San Francisco, a lot of tech money. It's just the whole thing makes you just, ah, just want to root against them. So The thing is... There is, and was that your storyline, just Joe Lacob and sort of similar? No, no, that's not my storyline. That, that's oh. just me uh, adding on well, to yours. Well, there, there is a credit that is due when we when, when franchises like... We talked like, about this last pod, man. I don't need to suck off the Warriors again. I agree, but I'm just like, I'm so disillusioned because like I look at the Commanders, right? And Dan Snyder bought the team in 1999 when he was like 34 years old. And we're literally stuck in this purgatory for maybe another 30. Think about this. Bad owner we know is the number one killer in sports. We, we are, we've already had this guy for over 20 years. It might be another 30 years before he sells this team. He's only mid-50s. And so you look at a guy like Lacob who's willing to spend and like maybe he's in the shadows. I don't know. Um, it makes me more mad as a fan of like teams with just terrible ownership. So anyway, continue. What's your storyline? So mine, and I already mentioned this to you, it's Gary Payton's uh, role in this whole thing. <laughs> That's so now, obscure Gary, and minor. Gary Payton, look, what happened in that Memphis series um, from Dylan Brooks, bad hit, you know, shouldn't have happened. But the amount that that was milked by Steve Kerr in press conferences, talking about just what Gary Payton had to go through, what kind of, you know, and, and there are a lot of jokes online being made about how he made it sound like he was dead. Like the team was like, we're praying for him. We're hoping he's able to return. And for a guy who, look, as great as he is defensively by all metrics, is still a bit player on this Warriors team. And and then there's all the reporting on Gary Payton, questionable for game one or ramping up. And I just think I've never seen a player so inconsequential in the grand scheme of things to a finals get this much media attention and hype now i get it he's talented he's a great defensive player his story is awesome he also won a community assist award i forgot the name of the award right so he's a good dude awesome but the amount of attention that goes towards this guy and the amount that steve kerr's milking it i i hate it i hate everything about it Dude, for all of the things you could pick with, you went to the guy who's like clawed and scratched his way to the to the pros, who's been in you know, overseas, who's been in the G League, who's bounced around from training camp to rosters. Poor dude just wants a shot. He, yeah, I mean, they're talking about him a little bit more flowery than he than necessary for being a mid bench guy, but. How can you hate on, of all the people in the Warriors ecosystem, you chose the one guy who I'm actually rooting for, Gary Payton, the mitten, 
Like that's he, he's my guy. He was on the Warriors, he's right? A, or the Wizards. Form, he was on he's the Wizards a on like wizard a ten-day contract. Yeah, and I should we should have signed. I would have paid for the second ten-day if they gave him the option. Like that's how much he was clearly necessary for the team. But they're like, nope, we don't like defense, hustle, leadership, intensity, focus. None of those things fit into our culture or ethos, so we're going to let him walk. Gary Payton, he's fine. He's probably, you know, talked about 20% too much. But I think, like to, your, like to your point, some of it absolutely had to do with the nature of the injury. And I think that added fuel to the, to the fire of this mystique of Gary Payton. And don't get me wrong. I don't mind all the media attention around the story, his, what he had to go through, all that. It's the media attention around his injury and how it's holding the Warriors back and they don't have their best defender or one of their best defenders. It's like, dude, this guy plays, what, how many minutes a game? 15 minutes a game? Yeah, in the playoffs right now, he's averaging 15.9 minutes. Yep. Yeah, so let's not and let's see how much time he gets in this Celtics series when the rotation is going to be even tighter, right? Like who are your, who's Golden State 7 or 8? You've got um, Steph, Clay. Poole, Draymond, Looney, Wiggins, Payton, Otto Porter, Otto Porter, right? Kuminga, I don't know. Do they want more size? Then you might go Iguodala or Kuminga or Porter. So, anyways, my point is, I just I think Porter is how much he is. I think Porter's going to play because of three point shooting. I don't know what Iguodala's physical state is or mental. Like, he's like at board meetings, I think, versus at practice. I don't know what he's doing, but um, they, yeah, they, I mean, they're also a team that has not, you know, they've not traditionally shrunk rotations to seven people, right? They actually play eight, nine guys because I also think it's a fairly physical style of play or fairly physically intensive style of play with that much movement. Like, it's crazy, dude. Stephen Curry is averaging 33.6 minutes per game in the playoffs. That's like a low total for the regular season. Yeah. You know, to give you to 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 give you uh context, like if you go look at let's look at Jason Tatum. He's at 41.1. So, that is a pretty big difference and and Tatum's minutes have been a lot harder because he's been in two seven game series in a row where it looks like Steph hasn't really even broken a sweat yet. So, all right, let's talk legacy. Um, Most legacy defining outcome or kind of who has the most at stake from a legacy standpoint, where, where would you go? I don't think there's any answer outside of Steph Curry. Okay. Uh, and this has already made the the rounds on all the talk shows. I think a finals win and finals MVP. I don't know if the finals MVP is important, but he needs it just to get that monkey off his back and they'll give it to him. He could average 20 a game on 40% shooting. They'll give it to him. Um, this puts him into the top 10 borderline top 10 conversation. Uh, to you me, already dumped Kobe from this list last week. In I haven't. I haven't. I said. I said. There's a good argument to put him above Kobe. Uh, I and I think what holds Steph back is actually some of the other things, such as the All NBAs, the All Star teams. He doesn't even have that many first team All NBA selections, right? And part of it's injuries. Part of it is early in his career. You know, it took a little bit of time to get going, but. In terms of the wins, the impact, and the fact that just from a story standpoint, winning this title 
couple years later with a team that is uh, effectively a lot of parts have been changed and a lot of young talent and to get through an easy West Conference for the most part, but still have to face a tough Boston team and you can win. I mean, this, the, the numbers, the accolades, what he's meant to the game, I think he gets put in that 9 or 10 slot. And I only say he gets close to Kobe because on my list, Kobe is right around 9 or 10. I know he's higher on most people's. But I think he gets in that conversation, which is when you're a top 10 all time, that is a different tier than the 10 to 20 guys. So he definitely has the most to gain. Yeah. And I don't think he has that much to lose. I don't think he has that much to lose unless he absolutely flames out and plays like a 2011 LeBron kind of series where he's just got the yips type thing, which I just, he's never really happened to him even when he's played poorly. So I would not expect that to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I think we have to remember (laughs) this is like asking, you know, someone from freaking, I don't know, the Caribbean to learn how to ski in a month. Like we have to, it's an impossible task. We have to remember what we said now after the outcome's already done. And what I mean by that is, excuse me, what I mean by that is everyone who said Draymond and Clay are washed or system players are not that good has to remember that if the Warriors win, they can't then go be like, oh, well, Steph had all this help, Hall of Famers all over the board. Everyone who said Boston's got a historic defense, they're the best team in the league, 538 has had them as the title favorite since, you know, mid-March has to remember that when we say, oh, well, the competition wasn't that good. They played nobody. Point is, it's a moving target, but if the Warriors win with this roster, with absolutely no, you know, none of the players on their team would be, in my opinion, would be top 30 in the league. To do that with one top 30 guy in a, in a league that's as deep as it's ever been, pretty damn impressive, right? You can say, okay, well, three of those finals appearances were because of Durant, even though that's not really the case. Let's assume that that was the case. That means he hasn't really done it on his own, so to speak, since 2016 in the series. They blew three to one. So that's the last non-Durant memory for the Warriors, right? Mm -hmm. 2019, lost with those Clay and Durant out. 20, washed for injuries. And then 21, they missed the playoffs, which is kind of embarrassing. So to do it, come all the way back. I think the top 10 question is interesting. He's certainly approaching it. He's certainly above Durant if he wins this. The, 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 and, and I say that, I don't say that lightly because I would rather have Durant as a player, no question about it. So I don't know how to balance that with what the resume indicates. At the same point, I don't think his resume, nor would I pick him over anybody else in that top 10, definitely not over Kobe. As, as great as you can throw whatever basketball reference kind of comparison you want, and there have been a lot floating around that basically say that He's better than Kobe, Jordan, and, you know, Jerry West put together. But, like, I just don't buy it yet because I think the game is different. What he's asked to do is different, especially on defense. But, you know, nonetheless, the fact that we're talking about this skinny kid out of Davidson as a potential top 10 NBA player of all time is pretty outrageous. I I just think that – forget about the stats, right, because there's a lot of ways to prove why Curry is amazing. The – you can use all the double team stats that have come out recently because of the the whole KD Draymond back and forth too. Um, the funny thing is, Steph as as much as I hate him, why, why is Kobe so great? Why was Kobe so good? We feared him. Like he was a killer. He was a guy who can you know one on one. He was the mold of Jordan. 
Um, and he had those clutch moments and, and the ability to kind of will that Lakers team to wins. And Steph isn't the same archetype, but at the same time, have you? I've never been more scared of a player on a basketball court in any given moment than Steph. Now that yeah. transcends all the stats. That tra- goes beyond anything that should matter, maybe in the discussion. But in terms of just impact, you can talk about the fact that you know he's he plays off the ball sometimes, and he's and Durant was the leading guy. But no one scares me more than Steph freeing open for a split second. Or Steph, when he's on a heat check, and the Warriors are on a 6-0 run, 9-0 run, they're breaking the game open, Steph takes another deep three. And to me, like the fact that he just elicits that emotion, that's why I can see him being a top 10 guy. Like mm-hmm. That's the the kind of that um, aura that those top 10 guys have. I think Steph does have that. Now, the Kobe thing, I agree, maybe that's putting it a little too far, but I, I definitely would put him at 10 or 11 worst well for example a lot of people have kobe over shaq um because shaq by that fourth title even in miami and then years after that just wasn't the dominant i mean i don't think anybody would argue shaq's peak is worse than kobe's peak but the longevity argument wins over where like would you consider steph i mean a lot of people talk about him as almost a modern day bizarro version of shaq where shaq sucked everyone in with his dominance Steph yep. spreads everyone out with his dominance. And so it's kind of like the yin and yang. Like, would you put those two from just a pure kind of like fear and or sort of like game plan, singular game plan in the same stratosphere, Shaq and Steph? I actually think that's a good comp because um, Shaq had the same kind of fear. I mean, teams had to carry three centers on their roster. Yeah. Um, just for the fouls. Like, fouls literally yeah. every team had to carry three centers just to pick up the fouls. Like we had like the Kings were start, like playing Lawrence Funderburg, who had no basketball talent whatsoever besides being big, but he could take some fouls because when Divock got fouls, Scott Pollard is getting fouls. And this was a conundrum faced by many NBA teams, right? That faced the Lakers. And similarly, Steph involves sending doubles, just completely selling out to stop him. The Cavs did that in the 2017 finals. And a lot of it got brought up recently. Like I said, and KD, like, how would you, like, why on earth would you leave KD open? The fact that so many doubles were set steps away just tells you everything. So yeah. I like that comp. I think they're similar in that way. Absolutely. The one last thing I'll say about this is Steph gets more credit for the two titles he won with KD than Kobe gets, I feel like, sometimes for the three titles he won with Shaq. But if you look past the 2000 title, 01 and 02, Kobe was second best player in the world. The 2001, yeah, he hadn't really gotten there yet. Like his numbers are pedestrian. It was really Shaq just going to another planet. I think he averaged like 39 and 17 that series, literally. (laughs) But after that, I think Kobe was right there in a way, just like Steph was right there. And it was like, yeah, Durant won the MVP. Yeah, Shaq won the MVP. But if either one of those went to the other guy, it's not like anybody would raise complete hell. Um, That's what... Go ahead. Because like... Yes, if Shaq didn't win MVP, people would raise hell. I agree. But my point is Kobe was putting up 37 and 6. It wasn't like he was sitting on the sidelines for it. I, I Well, I, here's where I'll disagree. I'll disagree in the sense that I think Kobe gets a lot of credit for five finals. And, of course, his haters say that he was carried by Shaq early on in his career. Like, people like me, fine. I think he gets more credit for his five finals than or five championships than Steph does for his three rings. 
Um, well, because there are two more, more people... shouldn't he? Huh? He, there are two more, shouldn't he? He should, yeah. yeah. But my, my point is, like, you can take the first three. Let's say, okay, let's say the first two Laker titles, Shaq was definitely the better player. Maybe not the third one. And I would say all similarly, three. I say all three. They're, but they were close. The third, second and third one, they were close, but Shaq wins. Yeah, so that's more than half of his titles. And then you look at Steph and, you know, he's two out of three, fine. But if he wins this one, it'll be half. Anyways, the point being, I think it's being used against Steph as well. And just like you said with Kobe, if you actually look at the numbers and look at it, the impact was closer than you think, even though KD won finals MVP or Shaq won finals MVP. The interesting guy to me with Kobe is always Duncan. Um, cause that's the one five titles as well, basically played in the same era. They played all the time in the playoffs and media analysts, kind of guys who never touched a basketball outside of LA fitness always go Duncan. Any of like the, that boy, nice kind of watchers or actual NBA players always pick Kobe. And I'm not saying one is right or wrong. Obviously, this is an answer you can never actually get to, which is why it's produced thousands of hours of content over the years. But like, that's a differentiator with how you evaluate basketball. Because if you if you go ask NBA players, almost all of them, I think, will say Kobe. If you go ask Bill Simmons types or Ryan Rosilla types, almost all of them will say Tim Duncan. And yeah, and I think just Duncan's impact defensively uh I'll tell you the some of the biggest shams on the all NBA defensive teams were Kobe and Jordan selections. Don't say Jordan. Stop it. Jordan selections, yes, and Kobe gets the benefit of being Jordan Light. Those were like just come on, just pandering. Like I can show you all kinds of clips, and Jordan's defense was so highly overrated. And I think Kobe's got a little bit of that too. I'm not saying Kobe wasn't elite defensively for a couple of years. But he had just as many times where he, just as a superstar offensive player, you know, the effort wanes. You're not an all-in guy. Like Doug Christie, I think he made some second, third All-NBA teams. I think Doug Christie should have been there on first team over Kobe any of the years Kobe made it first team. But you know what? Like, we love Kobe, so of course he's going to get it. I finally finished Last Dance. And in game six versus Utah, 98, I just, I don't know if you remember, Jordan scoring 45 of the Bulls 87 points and getting the game winning steal a defensive play on Carl Malone. So kind of important to be able to do both like he did. And that's why he was a nine time all defense selection. Thank you. When the teams you're playing are have like only one or two credible offensive players, you can gamble, you can take risks. There's no penalty but the, for but the Bulls also lapses. only had one or two credible offensive players. That's what you always seem to ignore. You you're making it sound like Steve Kerr was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. Man, no, shot I mean like Jordan one... is. I mean Jordan is an all-time, you know, number two all-time. So <laughs> I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying that it gets overblown. The number of All NBA defensive teams, the Defensive Player of the Year, all that stuff is was not deserved to the extent he got it. Whatever, but <laughs> you, LeBron's. That's the one. Thing and LeBron should have gotten more. LeBron should have gotten more for his versatility. Of course, Jordan should have gotten less. LeBron should have gotten more. Somehow, LeBron's going to play twice as long as Jordan and still not have as many of uh, the awards. Because we're smarter Jordan. about the way we give awards today. We we have more. We have film we can analyze. We're not just reading newspaper clippings and taking people's word for what Jordan did the previous night. So Patrick Ewing should have won like nine Defensive Player of the Year awards if we voted like we yeah. do now. It's Maybe. possible. Um. All right. Last two questions that we'll take in tandem. 
Got to do it. Finals pick, number of games, MVP. And then the second question, which team would, which team's fan base would be more insufferable if they win? All right, you go first. I'm going Boston in seven. Ooh. Jason Ooh, Tatum. on the road. On, on the, the road. road. Second straight time that the Warriors have gotten to a game seven in the finals and lost at home. I think Tatum's going to have a monster series. Uh, I know that they're gassed, but I think the time off between Sunday and Thursday is going to be helpful, even though they have to travel across the country. I really, really like Boston's size, versatility, and I think they're shooting. Their defense gives them a high floor, like we've talked about all playoffs. Their shooting will hopefully not abandon them for too long of stretches. And I think they're going to get this done playing a brand of basketball that is going to really be able to not give up anything um, defensively to Golden State in terms of speed and athleticism while still being able to win the battle on the glass with Horford, Williams, Williams, and Tatum. So going Boston in seven, Cush, Bill Simmons, Rosillo, and me, we're all going to celebrate together. Um, and the answer to the second question, most insufferable fan base, times a thousand is the Warriors. Uh, all their fans are as of the last 10 years. And so, all they know is titles and success. At least the Boston fans, the ones who care about the Celtics, are for the most part students of the game, understand the 80s, understand the 90s, 2000s. And so they've had a lot of success, but it's not like they just got here, which is the case with 90% of today's Warriors fans. So that that's that's kind of where I'm where I'm leaning with this series. All right. Okay. I'm going Warriors in six. Okay. Uh, so also on the road. I think it'll be 2-2 after four. I think they win game five, and I think they just – the Warriors are very good at taking care of that game six on the road. Like, they've done it so many times. I don't even have the stats to back it up. I just – from memory, it feels like that's a key spot they're able to win. Um, and, you know, for all the, the things about just – it's going to be tough for Boston to adjust to Golden State's offense. Um, I think what's not made enough of is Clay. He's actually starting to shoot decently well yeah. um, from three. 40%. 40%. 40% playoffs. Right? Even though it seems like he has not been as consistent or automatic. Um, you've got Poole. Wiggins is playing with more confidence. I think everyone in the Warriors is kind of peaking. Like what we saw in those last couple of games against the Mavs was peak Warriors. And so I, I just think that they're clicking in a way. And, and Boston is, like we talked about, grinding these series out. I wouldn't say they're clicking. I wouldn't even say they're playing to the best of their abilities. They're just surviving. And I don't think you can go into a series with Golden State and just survive. The way the Cavs beat them in 2016 was you had to, LeBron had to be extraordinary. Kyrie had to be extraordinary. And who on this Boston team is going to be extraordinary? Tatum for a game or two? Sure. Brown goes off for a game? Sure. Can they win four out of seven? I find it hard to believe. So I'm going with with the Warriors in six. I think... In several fan base, I'd also say the Warriors. I actually thought you'd say Boston because their prominence in the media and just that part you're going to hear yeah. more, kind of right. But at the same time, I think the the biggest difference is Boston fans are already arrogant. They're already arrogant. They're always talking about their team. Well, yeah, they've had 15 championships this century. The Warriors fans, this just gives them another feather in their cap and then continues this whole narrative about just how smart of a franchise. And look, they deserve a lot of that, but 
after point it gets tiring to listen to. So the I, one thing I'd say about the media is that besides Bill Simmons and Dave Portnoy and probably KOC, there's not a lot of media that's outwardly super pro Boston. I don't listen to Portnoy. I can avoid KOC. So it's really just a matter of dealing with Simmons. I mean, Rosillo McMullen. Yeah, but Jackie, I'm, I can tune her out quickly. Rosillo is the kind that's like, he's not rooting. Zach Lowe abandoned his Celtics fandom. He came out and yeah. said that. Rosillo is the kind of guy that um, will be like, look, I'm not a Celtics fan, but, you know, yeah, did I watch him? With, do I like to watch him so I can talk to my dad about him? Absolutely. Does it you know, give me great pride when they win and I do it in a Celtics jersey? Yeah, but that doesn't mean I'm a fan. And so I can, deal with, I can deal with that as well a little bit. But, like, it's really just me versus Bill Simmons as it has been for the last 20 years. And so <laughs> this is from a lot of us, yeah. I think um, I think I can manage that. A KOC will be very annoying. I will tune him out sharply until the draft coverage starts. But other than that, nobody is. Everyone has like that thin veil, like Chris Mannix, and you know, like um, Tim Bontemps is from that area. There's a lot of guys who have that flavor, but they won't come out directly and say it. So that's true. Yeah. So we're in alignment there. I, I'm just excited, man. I think it's gonna be. I was first sad that it's Warriors Celtics, two teams I don't necessarily like the fan bases, but I think you said it earlier. This is the best, potentially the best basketball matchup we could have gotten. Mm-hmm. And there's enough storylines and legacy talk and things to keep it interesting that um, I don't think it'll disappoint. And the Celtics aren't a team that that would get swept, or the Warriors no. aren't a team that get swept. I don't see that happening. So, oh, absolutely not. I mean. If Boston is to win, they have to steal one of the first two. I don't think they can win four out of five thereafter. Um, so game one, like you said, Warriors do really well in game ones because it's just like a just a stampede you've like you've never seen type thing, especially when you've been playing this crazy different grinded out basketball for the last three rounds. Um, and so it could be almost like a culture shock in a way, which means game two is really one that you should be targeting. And if you go back and look at the Dallas series, we had the same conversation about the defenses Dallas was, or the offenses Dallas was playing versus what the Warriors yep. were going to bring. It's going to be similar. And Dallas had the opportunity in game two, we're up 19 and they blew it. And that was the series. So I think Boston is going to come to a very similar inflection point. The thing is their defense actually holds up against almost anybody which is why I'm giving them the slight edge and, and hope that they're going to make life just tough enough for Steph and for Poole and for Clay. I hope you're right. And who, who would you take as your uh, finals MVP pick for Boston? Tatum? I said, I said Tatum, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, the fact that they gave the conference finals Larry Bird award to him over Al Horford pretty much <laughs> sealed the deal on like anyone else winning it. Yep. And did you have Steph... Obviously. Oh, stuff. Yeah, I'm going to bet that for sure. Like, there's just no universe in which he doesn't win finals MVP if the Warriors win. There's not. Kav- it's like Kav- a lot. Kavon Looney would have to average like 27 and 22. Yeah, and he's never done that. No, he's had like one of each one time. Um. All right, that's a wrap. Hope everyone has an awesome time enjoying the finals. So we're basically, so game one is tomorrow night, game two is Sunday, and then game three is Wednesday. So we'll probably come back after game three, I guess, um, depending on how the series go, if there's anything to cover before then. So by the time you hear this, the Celtics will be up 3-0 on their way to a quick, light (laughs) sweep of the Warriors. No, I'm just kidding. So hopefully it's it's a great series. And for those of us like Karthik and I who hate both teams, or at least 
don't necessarily root for both teams. Let's at least get some good basketball uh, to make up for a pretty questionable playoff so far. Um, yeah, that's a wrap. That's the least we can get. Yeah, exactly. So that's a wrap for us. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin Hoops. Please follow us on social media. We will talk to you next week. Oh,